That was taped. (laughs) No? I'll share some private stuff. (laughs) Okay. All right. So let's let's get serious. So um, we've been together practicing uh, very diligently. This is a very diligent group. People are showing up. It's, It's great. And for those of you who are new, for those of you who are not new, this won't be news to you, but uh, if, you're, if this is your first retreat, you might have discovered that actually the path of awareness, the one we're walking on together on this retreat, uh, it's a journey. Uh, it's very difficult to get all your work done in two days. Uh, and when you, when you sit down with yourself, um, you know, it doesn't take long before you realize that you know, there is quite a bit of work that needs to be done, um, you know, discoveries that need to be made. We need to learn more about, uh, we need to learn more directly for ourselves what's going to lead to peace. And um, probably everybody in this room has read at least one Dharma spiritual book, been inspired by it, by other people's experiences. And yet all of us in this room know that that's not enough. Uh, to hear about somebody else's experience and that we all have to walk on this journey uh, ourselves. You know, it's, it's, a, it's a path for all of us to follow. And even though we often depend on guidance and support along the way, it's a difficult journey, one that requires a great deal of patience. Um, it really is your, your journey. And, and you and we and me need to walk that path ourselves. And the reason I say that is because I have enormous respect for um, the practice that we're doing. Uh, this journey that we're on is both uh, profoundly deep and wide, extremely wide. Deep meaning it is an exploration, uh, a journey uh, that takes us below the surface of appearance. how things appear to be, how things are presented to us, how we think about ourselves, the images that we may have about ourselves. It's very, uh, often very surface-oriented. It's deep in that it requires us to begin to explore and understand the nature of our conditioning and to begin to see... Um, you know, how the mind works to begin to see, kind of discover a lot of the habits that the mind has picked up along the way and how so many of those habits work against us. You know, they limit us when we get caught or we buy into them or we invest in them. It's deep because for a lot of us, um, what we learn along the way is, is not particularly useful. And so it requires a real investigative process to find out what is useful. And just to answer the very basic question, you know, of um, suffering and freedom from suffering. You know, what what leads to liberation from suffering? One could not ask for a more basic question and a more important question. And yet, it's not that easy to discover that for ourselves, to see it very directly. And of course, the Buddha's teachings are, are, are a wonderful framework. Um, 
on his own path, he made this discovery, you know, what he came to understand the nature of suffering and liberation. And also he discovered the path along the way. But that's a discovery, a journey that we all need to, to walk and to explore and to test and to see if it's true. You know, is this path of awareness, does it lead to freedom? Does it lead to peace? Does it lead to happiness? So that's, that's deep, you know, to begin to explore those questions. And they're very, very important questions to ask. It's wide. It's deep and it's wide. And it's wide because it's all-inclusive. I mean, one of the reasons why we emphasize patience on the path is because the journey requires us to explore all aspects of ourself. It requires us to explore aspects of ourself, parts of ourself, different uh, mind states, different ways we relate to certain experiences that create suffering for us. And we need to bring understanding into those arenas. And that understanding is direct. It's something we learn for ourselves. It's not secondhand. But we also discover powers. You know, we discover the potential that's untapped you know, until we start walking this journey. So it's not all bad news, basically. There's a lot of profound and wonderful qualities that everyone has within themselves. And it, it really is a, a matter of uncovering them um, and discovering them and nurturing them when we do. They're really uh, universal qualities. Love, compassion, clear seeing, a sense of connectedness, you know, awareness of others, sensitivity in relationship. Those are all very natural qualities of mind. Those are human qualities. So the emphasis in insight meditation, certainly the orientation of this particular retreat, life is your practice, it's about that. It's about encountering yourself, not trying to have a particular experience. You know, we're not interested in anyone having a particular experience. We're much more interested in that's true for insight meditation and the Buddhist teachings. We're much more interested in, in developing a greater awareness or, or greater wisdom and discernment in relationship to what your actual experience is. So you can have your experiences. You know, you, we can have any experience in the practices learning how to relate to that particular experience. And so that's the ongoing practice. That's why it's a journey. And that's why it's not a two-day process. Because so often we do encounter conditions in our life that challenge us, the conditions that we grasp onto that then creates tension for us, or conditions that we have strong reactions of aversion to. And we suffer a lot out of fear, or anger, or contraction, or anxiety. So we need to take a look at those experiences for ourselves. We need to look at our emotional life. We, we need to begin to examine and bring the field of awareness into the area of relationships, all kinds of relationships, not just partnerships, not just family or intimate relationships, which, by the way, is usually a very challenging part of the practice for many of us, but all relationships, everyday relationships, things, all, all, all the interactions that we have and all the different vehicles that we communicate through. Uh, we, we want to bring more awareness to them because there's so much to learn. 
sometimes from the most simple and most ordinary activities. In, on this path, there are many inspiring stories, um, not just by sages, but by yogis like us, um, from just ordinary experiences uh, where there's a lot of insight. There's something we see in the way we wash dishes or how we uh, clean a floor, or how we relate to our choppers in the kitchen. Um, so much uh, learning can occur uh, when we're aware and awake and present. So it isn't just, quote, meditation, you know, sitting on a cushion, watching your breath. It's in any situation, profound learning can occur. And so what we want to do is we don't want to be fragmented beings. We don't want to just be happy on the cushion and miserable in our life. Okay? We want to explore all those arenas, including the sitting practice, including the walking practice, including retreat life and non-retreat life. You know, examining our relationships to each other, how we treat each other, it's so important to begin to bring so much more kindness and awareness uh, into our relationships with each other and, and just take a look at our relationship to our planet. You know, how we take this for granted that things are going to be the way they are and this planet is going to continue to sustain us. But not if we don't take care of it, not if we don't bring more awareness into that arena. So, the most common approach that we have learned along the way to resolve these issues, you know, to resolve the conflict and the tension and the fears and the anxieties, the desires, the joys, the moments of peace, the moments of clarity, the moments of connection and disconnection. Uh, Mostly what we've relied on is our thinking process. You know, uh, and what we can see um, is that our thinking process is highly developed in a certain way. You know, it's highly developed to perform, let's say, to uh, function in certain ways, to produce. Remember that question? To produce. Our thinking is designed to do that. And while um, we're not here to uh, downgrade thinking or... Um, create some kind of oppositional attitude or relationship to thinking. Uh, Certainly what happens when we begin to meditate, we begin to pay attention uh, to the mind in a more sustained way. When we step outside of our comfort zone, start being with ourself, um, as the mindfulness gets stronger, uh, we begin to be more aware of the thinking process, which is a crucial step and essential step along the way towards freedom is to begin to include your thinking, one's thinking, in, in the field of mindfulness. And we'll be getting to that as the retreat unfolds more and more. But certainly some of the discoveries that I've made and, and other yogis have made along the way um, is, I mentioned this the other day, maybe in Q&A, was 
you can, we've actually made a few jokes about it because it is, I think it is kind of funny. Um, but, you know, we kind of do sit down and think we're pretty smart um, because we have a PhD or we have this job or that job or whatever it might be. We might have gotten scholarships or a lot of approval, good at our jobs, whatever. We think we're clever, creative. And then we sit down and we find out the truth, uh, which <laughs> is that we're really unbelievably habitual in our thinking. And, you know, we could spend an hour thinking about uh, what you're going to do after lunch. You know, you're going to go for a walk, but let, let's, let's take an hour to think about it. Uh, and imagine what that experience is going to be like. And imagine it's going to be so much better than what you're doing right now um, because you're free. You know, nobody's watching you. Um, so it can be very habitual and repetitive. I'm not sure if you've noticed that. How, like, repetitive those tapes and thoughts are, sure. Extremely repetitive. And also how reactive our thinking is, right? I mean, it can react to anything. Tiniest little things that we don't like. It shouldn't be that way. The mind can just get all riled up about it. Uh, and very judgmental, Ryan was talking about. You know, judgmental about anything. It doesn't matter. You know, it could be anything. Literally anything. Um, it, it's too good. It's too bad. Whatever, you know. I mean, it, it, it's very easy to uh, see the flaws, how things should be. I'm certainly familiar with that habit. Uh, but it's a habit, of course, and we're always describing our experience, right? You sit down and then you tell somebody what it was like, or you're talking about it as it's happening. Uh, yeah, this isn't very good. Yeah, this is really great. That's a fantastic breath that I just took. It was calm. It was relaxed. It was deep. Uh, my shoulders actually relaxed. Let's try to do that again. Uh, so there's a lot of commenting and describing and interpreting I'll go through some of these things. Analyzing, evaluating, comparing, naming, labeling, drawing conclusions. That's a lot of our thinking is, is framed around those kinds of things. Um, and another thing that I think is really interesting, a Chan teacher was the first one that used this phrase, and I, I love it because it's so descriptive of the thinking process and the limits the incredible limits of relying on just thinking, you know, really relying on that form of intelligence as the main form of intelligence that you have, is how self-referential our thinking is. Have you ever noticed that? Like how much you're thinking about yourself? You could be thinking about yourself all day long, about how you're relating to everything, and how everything centers around who? <laughs> right. Exactly. It's not us. <laughs> it's me. It's my practice. It's my body. It's my mind. It's my habits. It's my mindfulness. It's, you know, whatever that, it's my samadhi. Um, it's my joy. It's my peace. Uh, a lot of the thinking is very self-referential. And we can see kind of how small that world can get uh, when we're absorbed in self-referential thinking. And finally, what we learn if we begin to pay attention yeah, I really have to pay attention sometimes very carefully to this. But just how much our thinking is conditioned by our desires and fears. Something to just kind of keep an eye on. Not in any kind of judgmental way. You know, we're not encouraging, oh, watch it, catch that desire, catch that fear. No, just keep paying attention. And, and what we'll often see is the energy that's fueling the thinking process. And a lot of times it is desire and a lot of times it's fear. They express themselves in different ways, but they really, a lot of times, they're the engine or the fuel 
uh, to a lot of our thinking. Now, I started practice a long time ago. I was just a young guy. And uh, when I look back at that period, All I can say is, boy, did I come to practice in a very troubled place. You know, really, really troubled place. Uh, really suffering a great deal. And I've been trying different things. I've been trying yoga. I've been, I, you know, I started pretty young, like really in high school. I started reading some spiritual books and I started doing yoga when I got out of high school. And I was, um, you know, reading some philosophers like Christian Murdy and people like that. So I was very interested. Uh, Basically, the only tools I really had was my thinking mind, you know, to kind of work through all this stuff and think about it and reflect. And um, what I finally realized, kind of an insight, which is that I wasn't going to be able to think my way out, you know, kind of of this, I would say pretty close to a hole that I dug in, dug myself into out of fears and all sorts of things that I'd picked up along the way, past experiences. And for me, that was a really important insight because it kind of fueled my search. And I remember really when I discovered mindfulness. I was in 74, I was traveling, and I went to this place called Naropa, and Joseph Goldstein had just come back from Asia. He was, he was a young guy too. Uh, and uh, he'd been in Asia for five or six years, and he was—he this was really his coming to the states to begin to launch vipassana, really insight practice in the states. This was his first summer back, and um, I sat in on his class. I had sat in a couple of classes prior to his class, but I didn't like some of the stuff that was going on in those classes. It was all different kinds of Buddhism and stuff, and I just wasn't resonating with the other uh, approaches. And then I kind of got into his class late. I actually snuck in uh, to his class because it had already started. Uh, like, you can't do that on retreats, but I, I did that on this, this case, and I snuck in, and I, because I, I paid money and everything. I was, I didn't, <laughs> I didn't feel like I was stealing, but, but I, you know, they did start checking people because the class was growing in size, and I got in just in the nick of time. So I got in, I heard his teaching, and it was, you know, essentially a lot, a lot, was around being mindful. And it was so powerful. To discover another approach. So when I heard his teaching, it made so much sense. And so I took it up and in, in an incredibly extreme way, I would say, too, which is not too surprising, right? Um, you know, there was very little wisdom uh, in those days in general. <laughs> In the Dharma scene, with the yogis, with the teachers, you know, it was like basically mindfulness was everything. And of course, the practice is a lot more than being mindful. But there was a tremendous emphasis on being mindful, and it was useful. And I remember take, making this commitment for like two or three years that I wasn't going to think. Every time I... <laughs> seriously. I, I, 
every time I thought, I said, every time I think I'm going to be mindful. And, you know, I had to plan and stuff, you know. And I had to think. Uh, but I was so dedicated to being mindful and staying, sticking really close to the breath, you know, because I knew that was kind of my, like, felt like my only hope was to just be mindful of the breath. And so I really took, out, took, out, took it up for quite a while. And, and eventually I gave up on the not thinking. Um, practice and realized I still had to think and function and all of that and that thinking wasn't necessarily my enemy um, which is what I kind of had made it out to and what I realized was you know no I could take it as eventually I realized this it took a little while eventually I realized you could take it as an object of mindfulness I heard the words but I never really believed it uh, and then eventually I realized yeah oh yeah it's about my relationship to thinking that that's causing me trouble the thoughts themselves hey they're just thoughts thoughts from the past a lot. But the mindfulness really begins to make a huge difference because then I'm not as subject to my thinking. I'm not as, uh, what, maybe this is not the right word, but victimized by my thinking, not, not um, suffering as much by my thinking because I wasn't investing as much in my thinking. And so it was a very different journey, uh, really tremendous. And, and so many so many experiences came up over, over the first few years of practice, just so much release and just so many uh, powerful experiences and not so powerful experiences, just the whole range of things. And it, it was a tremendous process of discovery and uncovering that the mindfulness practice uh, began to facilitate. And what I discovered, and, and I think that I've discovered this uh, certainly in my life as a teacher and even prior to that living in sanghas and communities um, was um, just how much healing gets facilitated by mindfulness, by the practice of mindfulness and, and how much freedom and kind of the unburdening of the heart can come out of that quality, that innate quality of mind that we all have that is so um, covered up and suppressed and pushed down and beaten out of us practically, that innate beauty and quality of mind of mindfulness. Um, just how, uh, how profound um, that journey is in terms of facilitating freedom. And one of the reasons why we emphasize so much our attitude in practice is because if we can train our minds to be more allowing, and make room for our actual experience. What we're doing is making room for mindfulness to function, to do its thing, to work on us, um, to heal us, to illuminate you know, what's going on. And so the attitude is so crucial because it's like us getting out of the way. But it takes a lot of trust to do that. And that trust gets developed, that trust, that faith, that confidence that we can actually just try our best just to be with the things that we don't want to be with. Can we actually meet the things that we don't like? Can we gently train the mind to love the things that we don't love about ourselves? And you can't convince yourself to do that. Fortunately, the power of mindfulness actually has that effect because it's so open-hearted. It literally doesn't have one ounce of judgment about anything that you consider terrible about yourself. Mindfulness will just simply reveal 
the nature of that particular experience. So if mindfulness rests on a sleepiness, it experiences sleepiness in a very direct way. It doesn't make a me or mine out of it. It doesn't tell you a story that you shouldn't be having it or it's second day and it should be over or you're a loser or any of that stuff. Okay, it just says, oh, sleepiness is happening. You know, what's it, let's, like, let's uh, shine the light of mindfulness on this process. And God knows I know what it feels like. It, it, the head, the body, the eyes, the mind, uh, the resistance, the judgments. Okay, that's oftentimes what it means to be sleepy when you're sitting there. But mindfulness doesn't um, impose anything on that particular experience. There's no should that you should be awake or that you shouldn't be sleepy. And so just think of how tremendously open that is and how different it is than our thinking. You know, our thinking will tell us a million stories about that particular energy if it keeps happening. Say it's still going on the second day. It'll tell us a million different stories about why we shouldn't be experiencing that or what does it say about who we are or what does it say about my practice? What does it say about this retreat? What does it say about the schedule? What does it say about the food? What does it say about this? What does it say about that? You know, I mean, it can go on and on and on, and you can see how constricted that is, how contracted it is. And what we're relating to is simply sleepiness. You know, it's really not that dramatic. Uh, it's kind of boring. Uh, but we make so much out of it through our thinking process because we have an agenda which is created out of our thinking. It's created out of our preconceptions. Our thinking, our agenda is created by our history, the expectations that we impose on ourselves, the demands that we make on ourselves, the way that we define ourselves through success and failure. All that shapes our thinking. So the smallest, most innocent, um, neutral experience can turn into trouble, precisely because we're relating to it in such a, a reactive way. Mindfulness? Ah, no problem. You know, Santini, my Zen, uh, Zen master that I studied with for a couple of years, he used to say, don't make problems. Don't make problems. We scratch our heads. We don't even make problems. I'm trying to get rid of them. Uh, no, this is how we make problems. That's just what he was talking about. In other words, don't think about it. Don't analyze it. Figure it out. Be mindful of it. Be open to it. And then we're not making a problem out of sleepiness. So effort is crucial in um, learning how to make a very gentle effort in practice is also a huge part of the journey. It's a difficult thing to ask to uh, be gentle. You know, when the mind is conditioned to be harsh or judgmental or um, push us. But one can learn to do that more. And gentle doesn't mean, I don't know if this is politically correct, but it doesn't mean wimpy um, or um, fearful or passive. But it does take perseverance. Absolutely. The journey absolutely takes perseverance. If we don't have some degree of perseverance, which can be developed, 
absolutely. It's not like it's necessary. Perseverance isn't necessarily innate. You know, it comes out of growing confidence in our practice. It comes out of realizing you're suffering and you don't want to suffer. You want to understand the nature of it. There are different sources of perseverance. It's not perseverance doesn't come out or it doesn't at least last uh, when you're trying to be successful or, or be really good at something. That actually tends to lead to a burnout or discouragement or resignation because we get disappointed. Perseverance allows us to move through our disappointments because at some point or another we will get disappointed. Absolutely. We will not like what we see. We will want it to be different. And so it takes a certain degree of perseverance to move through that. The reason is because we pick up habits along the way. And habits, many of the habits, we don't know about. We don't know what they are because we live them. That's our life. That's our reality. That's how we interact. That's how we think. Perfect illustration. This is kind of an anti-inspiration story. (laughs) It's like you won't get inspired by this story, um, but you might get a sense of what I'm talking about in terms of habits, hard to break habits. Um, Well, you can't whisper or swallow quietly with the mic on. So I was on IMS staff in the relatively early years, not the very beginning years, but you know, the center hadn't been around for very long. And when I was on staff, there were about 10 or 11 people. Now there's quite a, quite a large staff. And we were, we were like, what would you call us? Um, functionally efficient, like not really that efficient. Uh, we were always looking for ways out. Uh, and you know, we were, worked, I worked in the office. And I never worked in an office in my life. And they put me in charge of uh, like bookkeeping. <laughs> and the truth is, I, never, I didn't even have a personal checking account until then. <laughs> I, I don't even know if I knew what a bank was when I became on staff. You know, I knew it was someplace you get money, but I never had any money. So <laughs> the bank wasn't that much of a use to me. Um, so I was uh, on staff. And there weren't that many courses and they weren't that big. So we had a lot of time to kill. And, you know, we were often not up to like really unethical behavior, but we were up to trouble sometimes. And we were always doing something that we probably shouldn't have been doing. Um, and so one summer, a friend of mine who was on staff uh, invited me. He knew there was some public tennis courts down downtown Barrie and we had a lot of time on our hands. And I'd never played tennis. I didn't grow up in a tennis family. Or, you know, I didn't get lessons or any of that kind of stuff. Um, and, um, but I had played sports. And I was reasonably coordinated, let's say. So got a couple of rackets, old rackets. When we went down, we started playing. And we really had a really good time. Like, you know, it was really fun. It was like a lot of joy. Because, you know, you know, it's like sitting and walking and hanging out in a meditation center. It's good to get the body moving uh, in a... In a in that kind of way. So we were going out and having a really good time. Then we'd come back and we'd report to staff, like what a great time we were having. Uh, and we were all smiles and all that. So people, it was infectious and people started getting really you know, interested and they started picking up tennis rackets too. And uh, started getting out there playing and then somebody had this really brilliant idea. 
I'm saying this quite facetiously, a brilliant idea about let's have a tournament. <laughs> okay, let's have a tournament. Let's organize it. And you know, there's these little charts and stuff with matches, and if you win, you make it to the next, uh, you know, thing or whatever it is. And so we started getting into this tournament, and it really started getting competitive. Uh, and people were like, you know, like kind of grinding it out. Uh, and you know, there's probably like eight or ten of us getting involved in this whole thing of playing. And uh, pretty soon, it really, you know, like people would come back gloating if they won, or uh, you know, making fun of other people, like quietly, you know, mindfully making fun of other people. <laughs> Uh, you know, mindful, unwise speech, unkind speech. Uh, you know, egos are like going crazy, either up or down, depending on where you ended up. And it didn't take long before, like, the enthusiasm. I think we might have made it through the tournament, like, to the end. Finally, somebody won. Big deal, right? Um, but very soon after that, like, complete lack of enthusiasm. Nobody wanted to play tennis anymore. Like, nobody. In, in fact, it just dropped out of the conversation totally, and it was gone. And I'm sure it's never been resurrected. Um, so what is there to learn about that experience, right? Well, one thing to learn is that um, a set of conditions came together, and our conditioning kicked in. You know, our competitive conditioning, and all our history, and wanting that self-worth, the success, and all those things started coming in. And of course, remember now, we are meditators very, very committed to the path. Uh, you know, many of us have been on the path for several years at this point and considered ourselves pretty good yogis. You know, done a lot of retreats, worked really hard. And yet, when we put ourselves in a situation, we really turned really kind of not such, like, not very good people in certain ways. Um, not everybody, but there was a few of us that I didn't, I wasn't particularly proud of. Um, so the tennis dropped away. And so, you would think we learned something from that experience being mindful yogis. But we didn't, and I'll tell you why. When the winter came, <laughs> someone brought out a ping pong table. <laughs> True story. So what did we do with that ping pong table? Can you guess? <laughs> yes, we created a tournament. <laughs> Only this time, we had trophies and little gifts that people would earn. Very small, <laughs> modest gifts. We were getting like $20 a month on staff. Uh, so people, you know, pretty modest though back then. Um, and I won the trophy, <laughs> which did me absolutely no good at all. Um, and Again, you know, I, it was a game that started out with a few folks enjoying it, and yet our conditioning kicked in. That habit of mind that can take anything and turn it into something that's not that pleasant or not that enjoyable. And what happens is we sap the joy out of it. And that's our thinking minds. That's our conditioning. And we do that a lot. So often we don't appreciate the things that are right in front of us because of our conditioning. And so, of course, ping pong dropped away, too. And that's probably been resurrected a few times over the course of a zillion years. But um, I did learn something afterwards, which sometimes is the way wisdom is. You know, sometimes you, I reflected on that later, you know, maybe down the road a bit, and realized that 
hey, it's not, it's not um, suffering to play hard at something or to, to work at it or to enjoy it and you know, try to do well at it. But there's another, there's a, there was a whole extra layer that we were adding to that that was creating a self out of that and compensating in a lot of different ways. So habits don't fade necessarily right away. Some of the habits are very deep and we need to be patient with those habits and we need to be kind when we confront habits that are very repetitive or the habits that we know that don't work for us. And there are many habits that work against us, that undermine us. Um, But it is absolutely possible for transformation to occur, for us to live not from a place of habit, you know, but from a place of freedom, consciousness, discernment, clarity, kindness. All of that's possible. And the key, I think, is mindfulness. You know, there are many, many um, gems and uh, fruit and wonderful things that get revealed through the path. Um, but mindfulness facilitates that, that capacity, that in its innate, which is, I think, one of the wonderful things about that quality. It's free. You know, you don't have to pay for it. There's an exercise that I do in my beginner classes. Like my beginner workshops, I teach a lot of beginners. I teach a lot of people. I introduce a lot of people to the practice who have never, ever sat. And I, I love that process. I love, um, I, I say facetiously, like launching people into, into the practice, like getting them started and presenting it something and, and giving them a few tools. And if they think it's valuable, they take it up. Uh, so I, I feel great about that process. But usually in my first class, really within the first, uh, when I start talking, like within 10 or 15 minutes, I say to everybody, I say, okay, so you can hear a lot about mindfulness. You probably already have. Um, let's just practice for a few moments of mindfulness and uh, just see if you can feel the chair or the cushion that you're sitting on right now. You know, can you feel that contact, those sensations of the body sitting on that cushion or the chair? And then I give them about, I don't know, 20 to 30 seconds. And then I say to them, I say, you know, is there anybody that couldn't feel those sensations? And literally, I've done this for like a a lot of years. Literally, there was only once that I had someone raise their hand and say, no, I can't feel those sensations. And to me, the beauty of that, um, not only for them to see that, but also the beauty of that in general, because it points to the fact that mindfulness is so there. It's so available. Here we are talking about folks that have never formally practiced at least a mindfulness practice. It's not to say they haven't had moments of mindfulness. They definitely have. We all have, even whether we've practiced or not. But to actually consciously and formally practice mindfulness. And what I say is, well, the way we experience those sensations is we just paid attention. We just shifted our attention away from my voice and all the stuff that's going around here and just brought this attention to those sensations, and out of that awareness, we could actually have that experience. We could experience that contact directly for ourselves. Well, that's mindfulness. And you don't have to practice for 40 years to gain access to mindfulness. 
So it's innate. It's an innate form of intelligence that gets obviously, clearly, most of us could attest to this, underused. Okay, and, it, and I would say it's undervalued often too. I think, but mostly by people I think that don't necessarily understand or know that it's even available or what, what that form of intelligence is about because it is a form of intelligence. And when it gets infused with our thinking process, in other words, when our minds develop more mindfulness and more awareness, we're getting in touch now with what's real, what's actual, rather than our fantasies or our preconceptions or our ideas about should or shouldn't. Instead of uh, having our thinking being shaped by all the conditioning and the history and all the, pre- all the ideas, the concepts about who we are or who we're not, instead of having all our thoughts shaped by that thinking, that very narrow, narrow framework of thinking, uh, you know, all of a sudden, you know, we have this other form of intelligence that completely opens us up to something so much greater. Uh, it opens us up, it, it dissolves slowly but surely that illusion that we're separate selves, you know, that we're cut off from each other or we're cut off from nature. You know, that's the power of mindfulness. It gets you in touch with the actuality that we all are nature. There's no experience that you're going to have that's outside of nature, whether it's sleepiness, dullness, thoughts, desires, fantasies, freedom, uh, peace, all of that. It's all part of nature. You are, your body is, your emotions are. And it's about living in harmony with that fact. And the concept of self, as negative as it often is, solid as often it is, it cuts us off from that actuality. And so we live in fear because of that. We're out of touch. We're, we're um, protecting ourselves in certain ways. We obviously have to protect ourselves, protect our bodies and our emotions in certain ways for sure, but we overdo it. about out of time here. So let me just take a few minutes and describe a little bit uh, so when we start practicing mindfulness we start meditating, start paying attention. Of course, we encounter our conditioned thinking. I've already said that several times. When we practice mindfulness, what we're doing, particularly if we're mindful of thought, if we're mindful of our reactions to things, either pro or for, if we're mindful of our grasping or our aversion, we're mindful of these habits, in other words, right? We know these habits are there. We haven't figured out what to do with them. But if we're mindful of those habits, we cultivate the right inner resources like mindfulness, like metta. What that begins to do, it has an effect on the mind. You know, a very deep effect on the mind. Effect on the brain, of course, too. And what it's, the effect that it has on it is that it facilitates a deconditioning process. In other words, we pick up habits, we pick up 
experiences and that of course conditions the way we think about ourselves so often. Well, what mindfulness does is when we're mindful of those habits, like say we're mindful of judging ourselves, or mindful of uh, thoughts of self-doubt, which is a very common phenomenon, by the way, on retreat, it comes up a lot when things aren't going very well, that energy of self-doubt arises. And a lot of us know that energy can arise in our everyday life. It can really torment us if we get caught by it, undermine us, paralyze us, limit us. Well, when we begin to include these habits in the field of mindfulness, when we actually meet that experience, say, of self-doubt with mindfulness, and this was very powerful um, insight for me and a very powerful um, doorway or step to take in terms of transforming this particular energy, this habit that I certainly had, uh, was when I began to actually recognize it. I could see it. I could recognize it. When I came a little bit more in peace with myself, I could accept it, that energy when it came up. Recognize that, oh yeah, I'm feeling really sleepy, but you know, my relationship to sleepy is a version and it brings up a lot of self-doubt. So when I followed that sequence, I could see three mind states. I could see the sleepiness, I could see the aversion, I could see the self-doubt. And all three of those could be mindfulness objects, including the self-doubt. So some state of mind that I might have believed in the past and invested my happiness or unhappiness in, the self-doubt energy that's telling me a story about the sleepiness and all that, now it was an object of mindfulness. And so because I wasn't investing in it, I wasn't reinforcing it. I was actually taking it as a mindfulness object and it didn't come that easy because I wouldn't recognize it so often. But once I started recognizing and catching on that, that self-knowledge piece that comes up in practice where you start learning about yourself and your habits, when I started taking it as an object of mindfulness, lo and behold, what do you think happened? What happened was is that slowly but surely it began to lose some of its hold on me some of the power of that particular energy, that convincing nature, the, the convincing nature of that story about who I was or who I wasn't began to lose its power. It began to lose its ultimate kind of reality or, the, or it, it's not the truth of things. It's not who I am or who I'm not. It's a mental state that's actually arising under a certain set of conditions. And you know, then what happened was is I wanted to see it. You know, I realized that every time I see it, that's a, that's a step towards freedom. So every time I could notice like expressing itself in anxiety or worry, which it sort of forms itself doubt, um, every time that energy came up, I, you know, take it up, pay attention to it, be mindful of it. Because if we are being mindful of it, we're not feeding it. It might seem painful at the time, absolutely, but we're not reinforcing that conditioning. And the mind begins to relax. It moves in the direction of deconditioning, relaxing. Not claiming it all as me or mine. Ah, self-doubt is arising. You know, okay, that energy, I see it. I see you, self-doubt. And slowly but surely, I didn't rely on that conditioning to define and determine my actions or my approaches to certain things. And there was a lot of freedom in that realization. So when self-doubt arises, it 
doesn't have to be so much of a problem. We don't have to make an enemy of it. We don't have to get behind it. And that's true for a lot of different emotions or states of mind that we invest in. So, of course, that's what we're training ourselves here to do, is to pay attention in a sustained way, uh, in a friendly way, open-hearted. Okay. So let's sit for a few moments. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.